Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. April Marie Tinsley was born on March 18, 1980, to parents Janet and Michael Tinsley. Little April lived at 307 West Williams Street in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and was a second grader at Fairfield Elementary School. On April 1, 1988, she asked her mother, Janet, if she could play outside with friends. About 4 p.m., she walked through her neighborhood to a friend's house in the 300 block of West Sutton Field. While she and her friends were out playing, it began to sprinkle. She then left her friends to retrieve her umbrella from another friend's home in the 2300 block of East Hoagland Avenue. Little April would never arrive at the friend's house and was never seen alive again. When she didn't come home for dinner that night, her mother reported her missing. As soon as she was reported missing, numerous police officers in the neighborhood began searching for her. A witness said he saw a white man in his mid-30s pull April into a beat-up light blue pickup truck, but upon searching for the man, neither he nor the truck was found. Tragically, three days later, a jogger about 20 miles away discovered her body in a ditch along DeKalb County Road 68 between County Roads 47 and 51 west of Spencerville amidst Amish farms. Her family was tasked with viewing a Polaroid photo of her body at the crime scene to identify her. Her autopsy revealed April had died of asphyxiation and had been sexually assaulted and male DNA was found at the crime scene. Once the news spread, a motorist reported having seen a blue pickup truck stopped early that previous morning in the middle of DeKalb County Road 68, close to where her body was found. It was apparent at this point that the man who took and murdered her was driving a light blue pickup truck. On April 7, 1988, police released a composite drawing of the man witnesses saw with April in the 2300 block of Hoagland Avenue between 3 and 4 p.m. on April 1st. The man was described as being in his 30s and weighing around 150 pounds and seen driving the battered blue pickup truck. The sketch sparked a flood of calls from people providing the man's possible identity. More than 140 of the calls were directed at one individual who was said to resemble the composite sketch. 
Also, callers reported that the man had talked to friends about knowing about April's death and that a blue pickup had been parked outside his home several times. 34-year-old Everett Shule was interrogated for eight hours, but interestingly, he was not arrested for April's murder, but for a different case. He was arrested for the molestation of an 11-year-old girl in October 1987. However, the following month, he was acquitted of all charges. Then two years later, in May 1990, a teenage boy saw a man drawing a message on the side of a barn in St. Joseph Township with crayons he left nearby. He claimed to have killed April and would kill again. Investigators strongly believed the killer wrote the message, but unfortunately, the teenager who saw the man couldn't identify him. Meanwhile, another murder would occur similar to April's. Seven-year-old Sarah Jean Bowker of Fort Wayne was murdered and her body was found just south of the apartment complex off Goldwater Road where she lived. Then, 14 years after that, during the Memorial Day weekend of 2004, a handwritten note was left in a mailbox along with three other notes found on the handlebars of bicycles threatening further killings in and around Fort Wayne. The bicycles belonged to young girls, and the mailbox belonged to a house where a young girl lived. The notes contained misspellings and grammatical errors similar to the message left on the barn. Each note was written on yellow-lined paper and placed inside plastic bags, which contained used condoms and Polaroid photos that partially showed a man's body. The semen was tested for DNA and matched the profile obtained from April's body. One of the notes on a girl's bicycle stated that he was April's rapist and killer and she would be his next victim if she didn't report it to the police. It appeared he wanted the media's attention because the note also said he would rape and kill her if the incident didn't appear in the paper. Some investigators believe the killer's grammatical and spelling errors were purposely written to make them think he was illiterate. A year later, the FBI researched the case and concluded that different predators likely killed the two girls and that more than one person was probably involved in April's murder. They determined that it was likely that both killers were sex offenders with sexual dysfunction and poor social skills and severe personal problems. They issued a profile of April's killer using a behavioral analysis a white male who would then be between 40 and 50 years old and attracted to prepubescent girls. The killer may go to places where young children congregate, make inappropriate comments about them, and collect items related to little girls, such as toys and photographs. He may live or work in Fort Wayne or surrounding counties. The killer is probably in the low to medium low income bracket and may have owned or borrowed a Polaroid camera in 2004. One of the photos sent to a child in 2004 showed the lower portion of the killer's body. In the photo, you could see a paisley patterned bedspread similar to a motel bedspread. In May 2016, the killer's DNA was used to predict the physical appearance and ancestry, and a snapshot was created. Then, in May 2018, Detective Brian Martin with the Fort Wayne Police Department arranged for DNA testing and analysis at Parabon Nano Labs using the evidence samples in storage. Finally, on July 2, 2018, 
Genealogist C.C. Moore with Parabon was able to narrow down the DNA sample to two living brothers by using open public genealogy databases for her research. On July 6, police secretly collected trash from 59-year-old John D. Miller's residence, looking for items that would contain his DNA. In the pile of garbage, investigators found three used condoms and sent them to the state lab for DNA testing. The DNA profile extracted from the condoms in his trash matched the DNA profiles on the condoms found in 2004 and the original DNA found in April's underwear. On July 15, 2018, detectives approached Miller at his mobile home on a lot at 13,722 Main Street in Graybill and requested that he go to the police department to talk. When investigators asked if he had any idea why they would want to talk to him, he replied, April Tinsley. They said he acted as if he wanted them to know the details. During his first interview, he told detectives that he couldn't explain what exactly happened with April, but eventually confessed to her abduction and murder. He said he was in her neighborhood looking for someone to abduct and was slowly driving around when he saw a little girl walking along Hoagland Avenue. He pulled up a block and waited outside his vehicle for her to walk by. He told her to get in the truck and she did. He brought her back to his trailer, the same trailer where he hid in plain sight for 30 years. He then sexually assaulted and choked her to death so that she wouldn't be able to report him to the police and then sexually assaulted the body again. The following day, he put her body in his truck and drove her to the site where she was ultimately found. The next day, when he saw no reports about the case in the news, Miller said he drove by her body to ensure it was still there. At this time, he found one of her shoes in his truck, so he threw it out the window as he drove by. He then began taunting police and leaving sick and twisted notes, photos, and condoms on little girls' bicycles or mailbox. Although he lived as a free man for 30 years after the heinous murder, he was finally sentenced to 80 years in prison with no chance for appeal. Thankfully, we now have one less monster on the streets, and little April can now rest in peace. Barbara Ann Blaknick was born on November 20, 1970, to parents John and Teresa Blaknick. At the age of 17, Barbara was living in Garfield Heights, Ohio. She was described as a free spirit who loved music and would often hitchhike to see rock and roll bands like ACDC and Led Zeppelin. She was a student at Erie View Catholic High School in Cleveland and was outgoing and a little rebellious. On December 19, 1987, her friends picked her up from home and then went to a bar known for serving underage teens. About an hour later, they went to a couple of friends' houses and continued drinking. Finally, around 10 p.m., she called her parents to tell them she would be home soon. Her friend dropped her off in Garfield Heights near Warner Road in Grand Division around midnight to walk to her boyfriend's house, Jerry Steed. She never made it home that night and was never seen alive again. However, her parents weren't initially concerned because it wasn't unusual for her to stay over at a friend's place on the weekends. Later that morning, an old company driver, 
found her naked body alongside O'Neill Road, a narrow access road that leads to Blossom Music Center in Cuyahoga Falls, about 30 miles from her home. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. Her distraught father was tasked with identifying his daughter's body. When the coroner took her body, he noticed a phone number scrawled on her palm. He severed her hand and sent it to another lab for testing. The phone number was believed to be for a taxi, but this has never been confirmed. Unfortunately, the hand has never been seen since, but they were able to collect DNA from under her fingernails. In 2019, the Cuyahoga Falls Police Department teamed up with Project Porchlight, a nonprofit organization that offers support for families of the missing and murdered. The DNA that was found under Barbara's fingernails was sent to Identifinders International. They found it contained a mix of 40% of Barbara's DNA and 60% of the killer's DNA. This DNA profile was used for genetic genealogy and ultimately led to the suspect's family name, the Sastolnik family, which in turn led to 67-year-old James E. Sastolnik of Cleveland, Ohio. His DNA was again tested and it matched the DNA found under her fingernails. He was then charged with first-degree felony murder. Zastalnik worked at Ferrotherm Corporation in Garfield Heights for 34 years. He did not ever seeing or knowing Barbara until he was shown the DNA evidence. He then claimed he picked her up to drive her home but didn't sexually assault her. He then said, he could have had sex with her, but he had many sexual encounters and didn't recall all of them. 33 years after the murder, on May 6, 2020, Zastalnik was arrested for Barbara's murder. Then two days after his arrest, on May 8, 2020, on a recorded call with his sister, he described seeing Barbara walking down Warner Road. It was cold out, and he asked her if she wanted a ride. He said she asked to use his phone, so he took her to his house where she got into a heated argument on the phone with someone and began crying. He said they ended up in his bed and had spontaneous and consensual sex. He claimed he dropped her off at Grand Division in Warner Road and drove away. Barbara's sister, Donna Zanath, said the man was unknown to her family and that she was shocked that an arrest had been made after all this time. She credited Project Porchlight a local effort led by true crime author James Renner for taking on her sister's case. Project Porchlight also raised $6,000 to help pay for the DNA testing. Barbara's father saw an arrest in his daughter's murder, but her mother passed away in 2008. After being charged with murder, he pleaded not guilty. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, his bond was reduced from $1 million to $100,000 in July 2020, allowing him to leave the jail and live with his brother while awaiting trial. Not only did he have indecent exposure on his record, but he also lived on Avondale Avenue, one block from Warner Road where Barbara was dropped off by friends late that night. Allegedly, he also has two brothers that have both done time for sexual assault charges and another brother that went missing on the anniversary of Barbara's murder. Three months after being indicted, he died of cancer while awaiting trial, taking away any chance the family had of looking him straight in the eyes and asking him why he did this. Barbara's sister wanted to know 
why she was beaten and dumped on the side of the road, and where he put her clothes, shoes, jacket, and purse. Unfortunately, these questions will never be answered, but at least this killer will never be able to hurt another person again. Rebecca Pena was born on February 7, 1975, to parents Juana and Rafael Pena. She dreamed of becoming an actress and was described as ambitious and dedicated. In 2001, at 26, she had recently left an extremely volatile and tumultuous seven-year relationship with Berkeley Calvin Curtis. He was described as being very abusive and controlling of Rebecca. He had a history of domestic violence and had the police called on him in 1998 when he choked Rebecca. Rebecca and Curtis's former neighbors corroborated the claims of abuse at Curtis's hands and said they had witnessed and overheard him loudly screaming and threatening her. In addition, her family knew Rebecca feared Curtis would kill her as he often threatened her with a gun. As a result, she filed a restraining order and a domestic violence suit against him. They had a young daughter together, and once Rebecca left him for good, he began to stalk and harass them. Rebecca was an extra on the set of the 2001 Ali movie, starring Will Smith as Muhammad Ali. On April 11, 2001, Rebecca finished filming about 2.15 a.m., and a witness claimed to see Rebecca walking in the direction of her vehicle upon leaving the set on Northwest 55th Street and Northwest 12th Avenue in Miami, Florida. The following day, Rebecca's mother called her daughter, but there was no answer. Her family was very tight-knit and also kept in close communication with each other. So, after a few days of being unable to reach her, she became very concerned. That's when they decided to report Rebecca missing. Her family immediately fingered Curtis as being involved in her disappearance. Investigators spoke to Rebecca's new boyfriend, who said that Curtis had followed him and Rebecca to her home that night and got into an argument with her outside her Miramar apartment. Rebecca's white Honda Civic was parked outside her apartment building, but Rebecca was nowhere to be found. Then, five days after she was last seen, on April 16, 2001, three men discovered a floating suitcase in the Biscayne River Canal near Northwest 153rd Street underneath Interstate 95 and called 911. Inside the suitcase, authorities found Rebecca's remains. On top were two 25-pound, weeder-weight lifting plates used to sink the suitcase. Also, a magazine addressed to the former apartment the couple shared in Silver Springs, Maryland, was also inside. However, due to the condition of the remains, a cause of death could not be determined. Curtis quickly became the prime suspect, and using a search warrant, police searched Curtis's home and found a weight-lifting bench, barbell, and 25-pound weight plates, which matched the weight plates inside the suitcase. Curtis quickly lawyered up, and his attorney would not allow him to talk or cooperate with detectives. His then-girlfriend provided him an alibi, saying he was at her home all but 20 minutes when he went to a nearby store. Due to her claims, prosecutors were forced to drop charges against him due to lack of evidence and the case went cold. Then in 2014, 
His girlfriend, who corroborated his alibi, was again interviewed. She admitted to lying about him only being gone 20 minutes, and said the truth was that he was gone a few hours. According to investigators, the new timeline could have easily placed Curtis at the crime scene as they had initially thought. Also, text messages were recovered that were sent from Curtis to a woman in which he wrote he could kill someone again. Now that they had evidence, Curtis was charged with second-degree murder in the death of Rebecca on December 15, 2020. Rebecca's father said the news nearly two decades after his daughter's death provides some relief but cannot heal all wounds. He also stated, with this news of the arrest of this person, the pain will be less because justice has been served. I tell everyone, enjoy life with your children and forgive them because you don't know what may happen one day. Nancy Noga was born on March 8, 1981 in North Carolina. When Nancy was a child, her parents divorced and she moved with her mother to Staten Island. She later moved from Staten Island to live with her father in Sayreville, New Jersey, while her older sister Janice remained behind. In 1999, at the age of 17, Nancy was a senior at Sayreville War Memorial High School. She was described as outgoing, friendly, and hardworking. She worked two part-time jobs, one at the Route 9 Rag Shop, a fabric and craft store in the Kmart Plaza, and one at the Old Country Buffet. She had enlisted in the U.S. Air Force in high school and had plans to attend college. Nancy lived with her father and stepmother at the Skycap Gardens Apartments within walking distance from the Rag Shop store where she worked. On the evening of January 7, 1999, when Nancy's shift ended at the rag shop at 6 p.m., she started her less-than-a-mile walk home but would never arrive. About two hours later, when she didn't show up, her father reported her missing. He only waited two hours because they were a very strict and routine family, and he knew immediately something was wrong. Five days later, on January 12, 1999, a man walking his dog near the entrance of her apartment complex found her body face down in a ravine frozen in the snow. She had been left in a wooded area behind what was then the Mini Mall Shopping Plaza on Ernston Road in Sayreville, just 300 yards from her apartment. An autopsy determined that Nancy was sexually assaulted and had died from blunt force trauma. However, detectives believe that her murder wasn't pre-planned and instead was a crime of opportunity because a tree limb from a nearby tree was used to attack her. She was still dressed in a purple Arizona jacket, flared jeans, a dark v-neck sweater, and black and white platform sneakers. Her purple backpack was also found near her body. Detectives on the case conducted more than 500 interviews following her murder, but no arrests were made, and the case went cold for 22 years. In 2021, authorities teamed up with Parabon Nanolabs and used genetic genealogy to identify 49-year-old Bruce A. Szymanski as a suspect in the case. He was arrested near his home at 78 Barnegat Boulevard in Barnegat, New Jersey, after a short foot chase with law enforcement. He formerly lived in South Amboy and Old Bridge, the town where Nancy worked part-time. 
He was then indicted on September 1, 2021 for first-degree murder, aggravated sexual assault, kidnapping, and possessing a weapon for an unlawful purpose. Sadly, her father, Mark Nova, passed away in 2013, never seeing his daughter's case solved. On Valentine's Day in 1991 in the Florida Keys, windsurfers stumbled upon a deceased female body off a dirt road in a wooded area off of mile marker 35 of US-1. She was found in an area known as the Horseshoe, completely naked and face down. Her clothing was found nearby and she had been sexually and physically assaulted and strangled to death with a bikini top. Her clothing and absence of tan lines suggested she was not from Key West. However, a day before her discovery, she was seen walking northbound while hitchhiking out of Key West to Big Coppet Key on US-1 at about 6.30 p.m. She had also been spotted by eyewitnesses at mile marker 15 and then mile marker 17, which were the last reported sightings of her. No one with her description had been reported missing, and police could not determine who the woman was. However, she was estimated to be between 16 and 25 years old. Unable to determine her identity, she became a Jane Doe, known as Valentine Doe or Florida Jane Doe, and was dubbed the Valentine Jane Doe homicide for the next 29 years. Fast forward to June 2020, using genetic genealogy, Jane Doe was identified, as well as her alleged killer. The victim was Wanda Deanne Kirkham, born in 1973 and lived in Hornell, New York. Her extended family believes that when Wanda was younger, she was abused by her parents, but no one ever notified the authorities. At 16, Wanda ran away from home, but her parents never reported her missing. Her killer is suspected to be 31-year-old Robert Lynn Bradley, who was living in Miami, Florida at the time of her murder. His semen and blood matched the samples found on Wanda. However, Bradley was murdered in April 1992 and discovered in a ditch in Tarrant County, Texas with gunshot wounds. It's unknown how Wanda arrived in the Florida Keys, but her murder appeared sexually motivated. Her parents were deceased when their daughter was identified, and her cousin, the only relative willing to help, were tasked with raising money to give Wanda a proper burial. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.